This day has several names. Palm Sunday, taken from the palm branches that they were waving. Jesus was not the first person they welcomed into Jerusalem with palm branches. Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, was also welcomed into the city that way. It's also called Passion Week, the beginning of the week of our Lord's suffering. It is also called the Triumphant Entry. C.S. Lewis says this, Don't say infinitely when you mean very. Otherwise, you'll have no word left when you want to talk about something really infinite. Mark Twain said the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Is this a triumphant entry that we read about in all four Gospels? It doesn't sound triumphant. If you look at Luke chapter 19, look at verse 41. We're going to go forward into our section this morning. And go towards the end of this narrative, but look at verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, and he's referring to Jerusalem, the city of peace, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Few things are more fragile than peace. The New Testament word for peace means at one or quietness or rest or set at one again. Something that has been broken, has been mended and brought back together. The city of Chicago has seen so much violence on its south side that it has been nicknamed by some as Chirac. Nairobi, Kenya, where two of my children were born, has so much crime it has been nicknamed Nairobi. Even in our city, there's such a cultural divide that some people refer to a city up near our Denver International Airport as disparagingly as Saudi Aurora. In Bucha, Ukraine, with the scattered corpses and torture cells discovered earlier this week, it is the antithesis to peace. Peace is a beautiful thing, but it's fragile. Herbert Hoover said this about war. Older men declare war, but it is the youth that must fight and die. Or Jean-Paul Sartre said, when the rich wage war, it's the poor who die. Albert Einstein said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. What hope does Jesus' entry into Jerusalem Give to people a world that is slipping towards a broader international conflict. What relevance does Jesus riding into that great city provide to people who are hurting or people who are fleeing war at this very moment? Do you desire peace? People in Ukraine desire peace. There's people in Russia who desire peace. We desire peace, but do you know what makes for peace? Or simply put, do you know where to find peace? What triumph did Jesus' entry provide to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who 37 years after Jesus rode into that city would be sieged by a Roman army? 
And Jesus will even say their children will be killed. What triumph does Jesus' entry into Jerusalem give to those many years later who were involved in the First World War? A war that Woodrow Wilson said in 1917 was a world to end, a war to end all wars. George Santayana, the Spanish-American philosopher, countered Wilson's words and he said this, Only the dead have seen the end of war. I've had you turn to one of four accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But, but what about it is triumphant? And that's a genuine question. There's a young donkey that has never been sat on before. A stark difference from an armored war horse. The donkey's not triumphant. Traveler's garments thrown as an improvised saddle, not leather and certainly nothing majestic. Jesus neither wears armor nor carries a weapon. He does not post a series of campaigns and victories. A trail of captives does not follow in his procession. He is accompanied not by an elite group of soldiers. He is accompanied by dirty, sweaty pilgrims from an 18 mile trek from Jericho and there are the ones that are surrounding him as he enters the city. He disappoints people's expectations. He was not the conquering political Messiah they had hoped he would be. At the end of the day, all the crowds disperse and he takes a quiet walk around the temple. He leaves the city and he goes to quiet Bethany that night. What is triumphant about that? Well, it's not triumphant, at least not yet. The very word means having won a battle or contest or a celebration of a great victory. It is simply an entry into Jerusalem. But I would say this, there is a victory that is about to happen because Jesus reaches the final destination where he will accomplish the work he was sent to do. He will actually win the war he was sent to engage in. Here's the big idea of Luke 19, 28 to 48. Jesus offers true and eternal peace. Look at verse 41 again of Luke 19. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Do you know what makes for peace? Simple answer. Peace is found in a person, not in a set of circumstances, not in a set of conditions, not in a dream vacation, not in anything else except in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus had been predicting his death ever since Luke chapter nine. Right. We're, we're ten. We're ten chapters later in Luke 19. Jesus said this in Luke 944. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And that destination, the city of Jerusalem, was always clear. As a matter of fact, in Luke 9, verse 51, he says this. Uh, it says this, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This section, this first section we're going to look at, Luke reveals that Jesus is the king of peace. And as you read it, you're going to see that theme sort of rise to the surface. That Jesus is the king of peace in three ways. 
by destination, by the mode of entry, and by the response of the people. Look at verse 28. By destination. We are given a glimpse of the theme of peace by the very name of the city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a holy city. For Christians, for Jews, for Muslims, everybody wanted a part of that. As a matter of fact, to this day, that city is divided into three parts. Everybody wants a piece of the holy city. The name means literally foundation of peace. But its history proves otherwise. Look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. There's an Old Testament theme that the, these animals that served a sacred purpose um, could not have entered into normal labor. So go, and if anyone asks you, verse 31, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Can you imagine being those disciples that were tasked with that? Go, you're going to find a donkey and its colt and untie them and bring them to me. It'd be a little fearful, right? This is not a culture that looked down upon theft softly. And what were they being called to do? Because Jesus is doing two things. He's, he's not only preparing for his own entrance into Jerusalem. He's preparing his disciples in this last stage of earthly ministry. He is telling his disciples to trust him in his absence. Go. You're going to find this. There's a prophetic point here. You're going to find it to be this way. Bring them here. And all you have to do if somebody asks you about why you're taking this is tell them the Lord has need of it. And they're going to say what? Oh, okay. Go ahead and take it then. And they said, verse 34, or verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Very important for the disciples to get this lesson. Because Jesus will comfort his disciples in John 14 and he will say, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's also going to tell them it is better for you that I go away. The disciples need to start to learn to trust him in Jesus absence. They were sad. They've walked with him for three years, three and a half years. Now he's about to leave them. They're fearful. They're troubled. Yet the church in Acts, here's what you see. The church and the apostles trust Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He is everywhere at the same time. That's what Jesus meant by it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, I will not be able to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. In addition to everything else that's going on, the training and the preparation this really is about the fulfillment of the great messianic oracle in Zechariah 9.9. Let me read that to you. Zechariah prophesies this. Matter of fact, he's going to give you understanding on why a donkey. Right? Matthew records that, that there were two animals. It was the mother and her colt. 
And the mother probably accompanied the colt to keep the little colt calm. It's a, it a kind of a beautiful picture of God's care in that. But Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly. And initially they did. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How will you recognize your king? How will you know this is truly the Messiah who has come to deliver you by his very entrance into the city? It's going to be conspicuous. As a matter of fact, most people, their final ascent to Jerusalem, a pilgrimage was accomplished on foot. Rarely, if ever, did people finish their pilgrimage and ride into the city. They walked. So this would have been a very conspicuous picture for the inhabitants of the city. And what Jesus is saying by fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 is he is claiming messiahship. He is God's promised one, the promised deliverer. Jesus would have traveled to Jerusalem several other times, but his final entry into Jerusalem had a unique significance. He is the humble Messiah, the King of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So this is going to be a male child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And here are his names. This is what he's going to be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Not only the city that he enters, but the mode of transport that he takes. But notice the people's response. Look at verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, these people longed for peace. They celebrated peace. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love what they say in verse 38. Blessed is the king. They understood Zechariah 9.9. They understood the implications of Jesus entering the city, and they had some idea that his entrance had to do with peace. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you know that wherever Jesus went, he brought peace? Even though on one occasion he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see in his earthly ministry where Jesus goes, he brings peace. When he was born, the angel said in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth. What's the next word? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When a storm arose while Jesus was sleeping, 
The disciples became afraid and accused Jesus of not caring. Don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus awoke, Mark 4.39 says, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, what did he say? Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And do you know what, what the Son of God can do with nature? He can do to hearts. Matter of fact, the greater storm was in the disciples' hearts. After rebuking the sea, he turns to the disciples and gently rebukes them. And he asks a question in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And yet, where the wind and sea obey, often disciples do not. They're not filled with peace. They're filled with fear. In Luke 8.30, Jesus delivered a man who was cutting himself and chained. He had so many demons that they responded to, what is your name? And they said, Legion. Do you know each Roman legion had between 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers? This man was not at peace. Jesus frees him, and the scripture says this, that the village went and saw that great work and they found the man clothed and sitting in his right mind. Jesus brought peace to that man. Do you know where to find peace with God? Would Jesus ride into our life and say, if you only knew where peace could be found, if you only knew what makes for peace. Let me read to you two Two passages out of the New Testament letters. The first one's in Colossians 1.15. It states this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So when you saw Jesus, you saw God the Father. That's what your God in heaven is like. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And that includes rulers and authorities today, making plans today to break peace. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. He enters into Jerusalem and he says, if only you knew the things that make for peace. Do you know where Jesus was riding towards? The cross. Death. And the New Testament captures that, that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. They're cheering for a political savior. They want Jesus to be king to expel Rome. And he doesn't do it. Matter of fact, in AD 70, Rome will lay siege to that city and destroy its inhabitants. And Jesus cries, if you only knew where real peace could be found. Ephesians 2.13 says this, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he's talking about non-Jews, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. See, that's where you find peace in Jesus Christ, who has made us both one non-Jew and Jew, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And where there is hostility, there is no peace. And then he says this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What a beautiful picture that Jesus comes to bring peace amidst turbulent, horrific circumstances. Jesus' entry gives us the hope of peace because he moves towards the work he was sent to accomplish, dying for sinners. It's interesting what the pilgrims start to sing as Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives towards the city of Jerusalem. They actually sing one of the Hallel Psalms, which are located Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, typically used in connection with the Feast of Passover and Tabernacles, and they start to sing a portion of Psalm 118. Let me read it to you. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what the little children quoted this morning. In Luke 19, Luke records it this way. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Matthew, Mark and John record it differently. John 12:13. they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out again, Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. Hosanna is a prayer invoking God's saving action. It simply means save us. That's what they're singing. But what do they mean by what they're singing? What they want is salvation from a country, an empire. They want freedom and salvation from Rome. That's why they were going to force him to be king out in the wilderness. He ends up feeding them. Remember the feeding of the 5,000. Why were they all men? Well, maybe women and children were there and they only counted the males. But it sure seems to be the, the design and the gathering of a military party ready to march south with Jesus as their king. It says that he, he refused their attempts to force him to be king. He feeds them and he sends them home. Here they are. He's finally arrived. This is where they've wanted him all along. And they're singing, save us, O King. They were disappointed. On the other hand, the Pharisees never expected anything from him except for him to rebuke his disciples. Interesting how external religionists have expectations of the Son of God to do something. But they were blind to the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That is 
what makes for peace, Jesus Christ. But look at the ignorance of what brings peace. Look at verse 41. Luke chapter 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The Son of God cries. Not for himself. By the way, he knew that he was going to be the fulfillment that week of Isaiah's suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. That's not why he weeps. He knew that he would be tortured. He knew that he would be killed. He knew that he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples. That is not why he weeps. But why is he weeping? And it's very instructive as this gives you a glimpse into the heart of God, that God loves his people and here he weeps for them. Here's why. Because he would go into the temple and they had ruined its purpose and he would teach them throughout the week and the people would reject his teaching, the gospel, the truth. Jesus weeping is accompanied with a, by a warning. Look at verse 33. And here Jesus is going to prophesy to them what we have now in our history books. He weeps for them and he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus isn't saying that if they really understood who he was, that this siege and attack could have been prevented. What it means is that soon when Rome comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, that they would actually possess eternal peace found in the King of Peace, Jesus Christ. It's not that God does not have a heart for children. For some reason, God allows wars to happen. You, know, you read in the end of Scripture in Revelation that wars will cease. They will come to an end. Psalm 46 says the same thing. Jesus does, though, know exactly what will happen. And he grieves for the people who fail to find peace before they meet death. You know, peace, true peace, is impossible to find if you miss God among you. There's all kinds of peace substitutes. I've tried peace substitutes. They always bring back unrest. The only thing that gives true internal peace is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 44. What was the time of their visitation? What was that? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They missed probably one of the last occasions to have salvation as Jesus proclaimed it. And instead looked on a totally different layer for something temporary. The peace of Jerusalem rather than the peace that passes all understanding of having your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. So how do we wrap this up? You know, many churches celebrate Palm Sunday with children. We've done this here with children coming down the middle aisle with palm fronds, right? And it's cute and it's a picture and it's an illustration. 
Um, some of the palm frames almost poked people in the head, and then we were concerned about eyeballs. And so you, we're not doing the palm frown thing this week. But do you know a lot of churches celebrate Palm Sunday, and they move right then to Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And they miss the most important part of the Passion Week, and that is Jesus' death. As a matter of fact, for some people who only attend sort of these festivals, Palm Sunday and the Sunday where we celebrate Christ's resurrection, they could get the wrong idea that it's all about celebration to celebration. Forgetting that the necessary work and war that had to be won is Jesus' death on a cross. That's why it's, it's important for us to stop and think about his death. That is one of the reasons we have what we call a Good Friday service where we take communion. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we always have that as a quieter service. And we sort of leave quietly on Friday evening. And then we celebrate on Sunday because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Christ's resurrection does not erase his suffering, blood and death, because that's where peace is found. Peace is found through the blood of the cross. Rather, it vindicates why he died. What makes for peace? Listen to what Zechariah prophesied about his son, John. And this is all the way back in Luke chapter one. And in some ways, this is our mission He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You know when it visited Jerusalem? When Jesus entered in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way, listen to this, into the way of peace. And when you guide someone to Christ, when you guide them into a knowledge of salvation, tell them about the forgiveness of sin, remind them of God's tender mercy, you are actually becoming a guide towards peace to the King of Peace. The crowd shouted, Hosanna, save us. How do we respond this morning? First of all, cry out in faith for Jesus to save you from your sin, not from your circumstances or from anything else, but to save you from your sin. Romans 10, 9 to 13 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hosanna. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that easy. It's so easy, it's called a gift. Secondly, cry out in praise because Jesus has saved you. If he has brought you peace, then bring him praise. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Do you have peace because God has legally declared you to be as righteous 
as his son, Jesus Christ. See, my peace doesn't stem from what I did or did not do this past week. My peace does not sort of spawn from how religious I might or might not be. It comes from the fact that I have been justified by simple faith, believing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If he has brought you peace, bring him praise. Romans 5 continues, Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, so you have peace. And then he says this in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice. This doesn't make sense. In our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you know that you can have peace with God even though you're suffering? In John 14, 27, this is what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come back for you. One last passage. John 16, 29 to 33. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. That's the disciples talking to Jesus. Jesus answered them. Listen, it's a great question. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have, here it is again, peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm going to invite our music team forward. And I do want to read in Revelation about a triumphant entry on which Jesus is mounted Again, John says in Revelation 19:11, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That will be a triumphant entry. Do you know what makes for peace? It is Jesus Christ through the blood of his cross to be received by faith. Are you a guide to other people leading them to peace? Do you have one person you are guiding that direction? 
Sometimes what we need are not more Bible studies, are not more conferences or seminars or blogs or books. Sometimes what we need is to get involved in a single individual person's life and be a guide of truth towards peace in Jesus Christ so that they can praise too that you now, having been justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.